Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rice, and on each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject. And on this episode we are going to go deep into the dark forest in search of a nasty little creature known as the Ethlisdan, the dreaded fairy fire. Or, as its English equivalent is known, Will-O-The-Wisp. But I think Ethlisdan is a much more fearsome name than Will-O-The-Wisp for this creature, which could, if it's so desired, lead you, lead any weary traveller to their doom. And we will also be looking at a variety of elf known as Puka, or perhaps best known thanks to a certain William Shakespeare as Puck. And their connection to the Ethistan will all be revealed shortly. Now, this episode is the latest in my ongoing semi-regular series in which I explore the different kinds, the different varieties of fairy folk of Urtulloth Tig, which was said to be in Wales as recorded by Wirt Sykes. Wirt Sykes, the American folklorist who came to Wales in the Victorian age and recorded some wonderful tales for prosperity, like these tales about the Ethel Dan. Now, if you've listened to the other episodes, that's great. If you haven't, Don't worry, you can still enjoy this one just as much, but if you did want to check the other ones out, the last episode I did on this subject was episode 43, and that was called Nasty Little Elves, and it looked at the secret origin of the elves in Wales, which are known as the Athlathlon, or a single elf is known as an Athlis, which... If you've been paying close attention, you might think sounds suspiciously like Ethelstan, the name of these Will-O-The-Wisp characters in this episode, and that is no coincidence. So, before we take a look at some first-hand accounts from people who claim to really have encountered this fairy fire out in the wild and certainly in their cases lived to tell the tale, Otherwise, well, otherwise I wouldn't be able to talk about them right now. But before we do that, let's take a quick look at that name, because I think it reveals a lot about what these creatures really are. And the fact that there are so many variations of this name out there in so many different languages and cultures, again shows this isn't a uniquely Welsh phenomena. This is something people around, not just even Britain or Europe even, but people around the world have picked up on these strange lights over time, over the centuries. But in Wales, the word Ethelstan is spelt. It's one word, E-double-L-Y-double-L again, D-A-N. Now, as mentioned, Ethelth is the Welsh word for elf, and Dan or Tan, D-A-N or T-A-N, is the Welsh word for fire. So, a nice quick literal translation would just mean fire elf or fire fairy. But as Sykes points out, and I think this is a lovely, lovely use of language, but Dan, D-A-N again, could also mean lure, to lure somebody off the beaten track, as it were, lure them away. Well, for Sykes, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to mean either lure or fire. 
it could mean both. And that means Ethistan could translate as the luring elf fire. See, why would you want to call something Willow the Wisp when you can call it the luring elf fire? Now, Sykes also gives us examples from elsewhere in the world, which I won't dwell on too long, partly because I'll struggle to pronounce them and it'll just make me look bad, but also I don't want to bog this episode down looking at languages too much. I want to get into the cool stuff and the stories about these fire fairies being all mischievous in the forests. But there are equivalents in Scandinavia, there are equivalents in Brittany. And in the Breton language, which has many similarities with the Welsh language, so hopefully I can pronounce this one okay, where it's known as Sand Jan Utard, which translates as Saint John and Father. In Brittany, their version of this fire fairy creature actually has five lights on it like finger ends which spin around in a wheel and i i love that description compared to compared to many others which are just seen as lights floating in the air to have five of them spinning around like a wheel i think Brittany probably wins in the coolest looking fairy light type creature but when it comes to similarities, one trait they, they all seemingly share is that they all try and lure you into marshy, swampy places where presumably you will come to a quite a sticky end, quite a messy end. But Sykes notes that even when he was writing in the Victorian age, even then these places were changing beyond recognition and the, the these fairy lights their traditional homes were disappearing and they were being forced to adapt and to quote Sykes he tells us that they were traditionally seen dancing about in marshy grounds in which it led the belated wanderer but as a distinguished resident in Wales has wittily said the poor elf is now to quote starved to death and his breath taken from him his light is quenched forever by the improving farmer the improving farmer has put an end to them because he has drained the bog and instead of the rank decaying vegetation of the autumn crops of corn and potatoes are grown so even by the late 1800s, with the Industrial Revolution in full swing, the traditional marshy grounds you would have found these lights had pretty much been taken over by farmers planting potatoes. And I imagine if we fast forward another 150 odd years to nowadays, even more of that land has, sadly, I imagine, been lost. And the Ethelstan has been pushed further and further to the edges. But... Nevertheless, I am convinced they are still out there waiting, biding their time. And if you so desire to find one, well, keep listening to this episode because more tips and tricks will be revealed on how you can potentially track one down as well. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe how they can track you down. I, uh, I imagine it's a little bit like the Blair Witch Project, where if you go into the woods with your cameras trying to capture these Ethistan, 
They'll turn the tables on you. And in fact, it'll be the Ethelstan getting you and turning the tables. But let's not go off on a tangent about 90s horror films. Let's get back on track. And Sykes refers to a poetic account of the Ethelstan written by what he describes as a modern character called... Yolo the Bard. Who could that possibly be? The modern character Yolo the Bard. And what follows is a condensed version of that poetic account by Yolo the Bard. So I'm going to read to you a shortened version of Yolo's poem, and in it he describes following an Ethelstan as it leads him on a merry chase through the countryside past all manner of, of weird and wonderful animals who watch them as they go by. But let me, let me just crack on with a poem, and it goes like this. One night, when the moon had gone down, as I was sitting on a hilltop, the Ethelstan passed by. I followed it into the valley. We crossed plashes of water where the tops of bulrushes peeped above, and where the lizards lay silently on the surface, looking at us with an unmoved stare. The frogs sat croaking and swelling their sides, but ceased as they raised a melancholy eye at the Ethel Dan. The wildfowl, sleeping with their heads under their wings, made a low cackle as we went by, a bittern awoke and rose with a scream into the air. I felt the trail of the eels and leeches peering about as I waded through the pools. On a slimy stone, a toad sat sucking poison from the night air. The Ethelstan glowed bravely in the slumbering vapours. It rose airily over the bushes that drooped in the ooze. When I lingered or stopped, it waited for me, but dwindled gradually away to a speck barely perceptible. But as soon as I moved on again, it would shoot up suddenly and glide before me. A bat came flying round and round us, flapping its wings heavily. Screech owls stared silently at us with their broad eyes. Snails and worms crawled about. The fine threads of a spider's web gleamed in the light of the Ethel Dan. Suddenly, it shot away from me, and in the distance, joined a ring of its fellows, who went dancing slowly, round and round in a goblin dance, which sent me off to sleep. And so ends that poetic account from Yolo the Bard. And I, well, I won't repeat it, but there is some wonderful, wonderful use of language there for all of the wildlife turning away from this Ethelstan, but he is compelled to follow it through the bogs, through the slime, through the ooze, and whatever other squelchy stuff is out there. He follows it, and whatever he tries, if he stops, it stops. If it disappears, it reappears, and he follows and follows until sleep either gets the better of him, or maybe the Ethelstan itself has sent him to sleep. But that 
is the end of that adventure. Although, if it was me, I'd just be so exhausted after chasing this thing around past owls and frogs and eels or whatever else was going on, I would probably just fall down in a heap and catch my breath and catch 40 winks as well. Now, as I mentioned briefly at the start when I was talking about names, another name for the Ethelstan, or rather, I think a different variety might be a better word. Sykes doesn't use the word variety, but I think they're quite distinct because the Ethelstan is this glowing light, whereas these things are much more elf-like, shall we say, and that is Puka or Puka, so that's P-W-C-A in Welsh, or P-O-O-K-A in English, and possibly the most famous variation of all, certainly from the English language, as the Will-O-The-Wisp was also known, and that is Puck, P-U-C-K, Puck. And of course, the reason that it's so well known is thanks to a man called William Shakespeare, and one play in particular, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Now, I won't dwell on Shakespeare for too long on this episode, because I did speak about him at length in the last episode about the Atlathlon, about the elves. So if you would like to know more about Shakespeare's connections to all of this, again, please go back and check out episode 43 afterwards. But just very quickly, when it comes to the Ethelstan, we are told that the name Puck, was once applied to all of the fairies in England. So while Puka and Puka were also used, but across all of England, all of the fairies were known as Puck at one point. And while I mentioned previously about Shakespeare having this knowledge of Welsh fairy folk and Welsh elves and so on, what I didn't mention is that Sykes suggests this knowledge of Cambrian fairies might have come from Shakespeare's friend Richard Price, who was the son of Sir John Price of the Priory of Brecon. And there is a point to this, I promise. Bear with me, I'm not just listing a bunch of names. But we are told that it is even claimed that in Wales, the place name Cum Pucker, Cum Pucker, which means Puck Valley, which is a real place in Wales, and which Sykes tells us is a part of the romantic glen of the Clydach in Brackenshire, as it was when Sykes wrote this. And if you wanted to find this on the internet, say, there is indeed a Shakespeare's cave in Clydach Gorge, which is over towards Monmouthshire, way towards the English border. I think it might fall into part of Blaen Avon's wonderful World Heritage Site, but certainly there is a Shakespeare's cave. And if we assume this spot is indeed Cum Pucker, then that would make it the original scene of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare's fairy-filled masterpiece. So, was A Midsummer Night's Dream inspired by and really set in Wales? Well, Sykes doesn't really seem to think so. He says that it's a fancy, as light and airy as Puck himself. Which suggests no, doesn't it? But either way, it's a lovely story. And it should be noted that while A Midsummer Night's Dream is a work of fiction... This place is said to be home to many a goblin. And also, there are 
other places scattered across Wales with similar Puka-inspired names. And many of the old inhabitants of these places, Sykes tells us so old back in his day, would have been familiar with the kind of pranks that the Pukas would have played back in the day, and which might have inspired William Shakespeare's Puck character. And to wrap things up with Shakespeare quickly, this quote from Puck might give you an idea of the kind of things the Pooka were getting up to. And that is, I'll follow you, I'll lead you about around, through bog, through bush, through brake, through brier. Sometimes a horse I'll be, sometimes a hound, a hog, a headless bear, sometime a fire, and neigh, and bark, and grunt, and roar, and burn, like horse, hound, hog, bear, fire, at every turn. And I think what that quote tells us is that, b- besides the fact <laughs> I wasn't cut out to be a Shakespearean actor, but, but it shows that Puck does have elements of, certainly if we think of the Eshistan and Will-o'-the-Wisps as purely fire-based creatures, maybe they don't turn into horses and hogs and bears, but they do lead people through bogs and through bushes. And maybe this is some kind of confirmation that Shakespeare was getting his folklore correct. And to wrap things up, I'd like to look at a story from a Welsh peasant who did indeed encounter a puka, which had a sufficiently grotesque elfish aspect about it, we are told. And this doesn't happen very often in these accounts from the olden days. But in this case, the peasant who experienced this puka did actually sketch out a little illustration, which Sykes was able to recreate in his book. Now, it's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. It was scribbled in coal. So this isn't a delicate painting with something by Caravaggio with strong light or anything. This is more of a, it's more of a scribble. And it looks, it's quite a difficult thing to describe. It looks like a cross between a tadpole and the the sort of grey X-Files depiction of an alien. It's got that sort of slightly big head, slightly beakish mouth, and it's, it's, black but then it of course it would be black because it's it's been drawn in coal so what i'll do rather than torment you with my terrible description i will upload this image to my website and share it on social media when this episode goes out and if you are not already following me on social media, I can work in a sneaky little social media shout out here. But if you're not already following me, I'm on all of the main platforms on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. And if for no other reason than to see this weird looking tadpole alien thing, pop along and give me a follow. Send me a message. Nice, nice tadpole or something. But anyway, back to the tale from this Welsh peasant, as Sykes described her, she was indeed a servant girl who attended to the cattle at Troyn Farm near Abergwyddon, which is a historical name I wasn't familiar with, but if the internet is to be believed, it is now Cumcarn, which is also in Monmouthshire, a popular place by the looks of it for these Ethelstan is is the modern day county of Monmouthshire. And this servant girl sounds like a kind-hearted servant girl used to take food to 
inverted commas, what she called Master Puka, the name of this elf. And she would do this by leaving them in a certain spot for Master Puka to come and collect them. And she would leave a bowl of fresh milk and a slice of bread. If you ever wondered what the, the Puka would eat, fresh milk and bread. But one night we are told she was moved by the spirit of mischief, which is a nice way of saying that she decided to have a laugh and she drank the milk and ate most of the bread, leaving for Master Puka only water and crusts. Nothing but water and crusts for supper for that poor little Puka. And when she returned the next day, she found that that fastidious fairy had left the food untouched. Master Puka clearly was not interested in water and crusts. Now, not long after, as the girl was passing the lonely spot where she had hitherto left Puka his food, she was seized under the armpits by fleshy hands in brackets, which, however, she could not see. She could just feel these fleshy hands under her armpits and subjected to a castigation of a most mortifying character. Now, sadly, or maybe it's for the best, Sykes does not expand on that. We know she was castized in a, a mortifying character. What exactly he did beyond putting those fleshy hands into her armpits we do not know, but simultaneously there fell upon her year in good set Welsh. So this puka had a good grasp of the Welsh language and they spoke a warning into her year not to repeat her offence on peril of still worse treatment. And we are told that this story is thoroughly believed in there, in Abergwyddon, to this day. And whether or not modern-day Abergwyddon, if indeed it is a village in Monmouthshire like I hope it is, after telling everyone on this podcast that's where it is, but maybe the locals there still believe that today as well. Maybe, maybe you live there or maybe you visited and you are more familiar with the old historical names than I am, in which case, please get in touch and let me know, well, first of all, let me know if my geography is correct, and secondly, let me know if the locals still believe in the honesty of this servant girl's tale. And maybe we can talk all about them on the next Sykes Fairies episode, which I imagine will be popping up in the next month or so. And as always, if you don't want to miss it, be sure to hit the subscribe button and you will never miss an episode ever. And on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian am grando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best. It's the beautiful. It is the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. Until next time, no star. <laughs> <laughs>